0: Brexit, co-hosted with the Financial Times. Uh, In the panel today, we have two representatives from the Financial Times. On my immediate right, Lionel Barber, the editor, and and next to him, James Blitch, the Whitehall editor and also author of the Financial Times Brexit briefing, which we are all following. Uh, And here on my left, Sylvie Goulart, a member of the European Parliament, and also in the panel today, Güntram Wolfe, the director of Brogo. A very welcome to you all. Thank you for joining us. Now, I'm sure, we, as you can see, we have a, a full floor today here, so we're going to have a lot of questions. But before we open up the floor, I would like to give a, an opportunity to our panellists to uh, set a stage for this discussion. So if I may start with you, Lionel, um, a very big question. Is Brexit a decision to become less globalised, following a much more general pattern, or is this a decision to re-establish the UK as a global player?
1: Well, let me just say, first of all, it's. Um personal pleasure to be back here in Brussels, my old haunt, where I spent six years in the 90s as the chief correspondent. I'm delighted the Financial Times is co- co-sponsoring this event. And I'm also particularly devi- uh, delighted that Bruegel has adjusted the voting weights so that the Brits and the Financial Times have a preponderant voice in this debate. Uh, having said that, The way we're going, ladies and gentlemen, at the moment is that the British are marginalizing themselves in this debate. Uh, the, The British people did not vote against globalization on June 23rd. They did vote in response to concerns about the level of immigration in this country, in the UK. Uh, They did not vote against the single market. Now, if you look at the important speech given by Theresa May at the Birmingham conference last week, and I was in Birmingham, you will see many passages which appear to support the argument that somehow uh, the British have been losers in globalisation. She talks about redressing the balance. She talks about Workers' representatives on board, she talks about, li- or she didn't, but the Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, talked about listing foreign workers, EU workers working for British companies. These kinds of, this kind of language was, to me, uh, British understatement. Shh. Surprising.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> because Theresa May appear to be turning the clock back. Not just on uh, the Britain, a reformed Britain, British economy, uh, going back to Margaret Thatcher, because there has been an enduring consensus since the late 1970s with Mrs. Thatcher, with Tony Blair. Tony Blair talked about uh, preserving the Thatcher Revolution, uh, and Gordon Brown, and then David Cameron. So. I don't think this was a vote, but I do think that the political direction, and certainly the tone, is changing substantially. Just one last point. There is a, the British vote was made up of a a curious mix of what I call uh, people who are strict constitutionalists, people who looked at British membership in legal terms and said, we want to, regain control of our sovereignty through British law. We don't like being subjected to European law and the European Court of Justice. And for these people, people like Michael Gove, I would say, well, at least they were honest about their position. There were other reluctant believers, people who said, well, actually, on balance, I don't want to be European. But they're still internationalists. And then there were others who, almost look back, not just to, the, to an earlier era, but almost to the Elizabethan era the, where we're going to become English privateers, a bit like Sir Francis Drake, uh, going off striking free trade agreements with the Chinese, the Indians, Australians, the Americans, and actually, oh, Europe? Well, that can come later, or we'll deal with that. I mean, this, these people are in fantasy land. Uh, they don't understand the degree of independence. They don't understand... <coughs> the degree to which the European Union is an expression of globalisation and is a vehicle for dealing with globalisation. But that's a whole other issue. Mm
0: -hmm. Thank you very much. Well, you talked about Britain being marginalised. So, James, you talked on Friday in your column about goodbye to the best-case scenarios. This was the title in, in your blog on Friday. But, I mean, what would really be the impact on UK businesses? depending on which of the two scenarios, of course, is correct.
2: Well, I think the impact on British business is going to be pretty serious, and that should not be underestimated. British business is worried. It's far more worried about the course of events politically than at any time I can remember. Um, Look at the front page of the Financial Times last Saturday, when the head of the CBI, the Employers' Federation, was complaining about two things. First, that business in Britain is not being consulted, By Theresa May in any way their perception is that what is happening is that politics and in particular the politics of immigration has got the upper hand over uh, um, over economics and the concerns of enterprise so they're very worried that a quite significant political cultural shift is taking place and as I say they're also concerned the second thing they're concerned by is that that is going to have a significant impact on them that if the Britain decides to put up um, immigration controls, that's going to make it very difficult indeed for uh, companies in the UK to recruit the kind of employees they want from Europe. Now, the Brexiters are not calling for Britain to close in on itself, as Lionel has said. They're not c- calling for us to become a smaller, more enclosed, inward-looking economy. What they're basically saying is, look we can put up a few immigration controls, or more than a few in some cases. We can come out of the European Court of Justice and the jurisdiction. The Europeans are not going to turn around and put lots of tariffs on us because they want to sell lots of stuff to us. German companies particularly want to sell 800,000 cars a year. And even if they do put tariffs on us, then we can compensate more than adequately by striking lots of trade deals with non EU states, with China, India, Brazil, and so on. My own view is that they underestimate the extent to which the UK EU trading relationship will be degraded, and they overestimate what that can be achieved, especially what can be achieved quickly in the trade deals with other states, especially since the UK will be unable, will be unable to do any kind of proper deal until it has formally left the EU, as you know. I'd like to say one thing about the events of last week, which is, I think, important. There is one, in my view, there is one silver lining in what we've seen over the last few days at the Conservative conference and the reaction afterwards. My fear until last week was that Mrs May would go on doing what she started off doing, which is not to give a running commentary, keep the the discussion about the direction Britain should take within the Cabinet, um, and that Britain would go on doing what it's doing, which is basically sleepwalking towards a hard Brexit door, because the economy is doing reasonably well at the moment, Parliament has been pretty dormant, and there's been no serious discussion about the issues. What Mrs May did last Sunday in her speech was actually break her own rule. She gave a running commentary. She set out very clearly that Britain would leave the ECJ, and that therefore means we would have to leave membership of the single market. And she also spelled out a pretty hard line in terms of tone on immigration. Now, the good news, I think, is that that has now had an impact on the debate. It's shaken things up. You've seen the reaction of Sterling, you've seen the reaction of British business, you've seen the reaction of European leaders, and now I think what is happening is we're having more of a debate in Parliament about the kind of direction that Britain's going in, and you're seeing a cross-party group of MPs saying, look, we don't want to have a vote on whether to reverse the Brexit decision. That's not going to happen. Nobody believes that one can reverse what happened on the 23rd of June. But we do need to have a say, and if possible a vote, on what precise deal the British are doing. And I think that's good news, because I think that if we had just gone on like this and got to the Article 50 and negotiation letter next spring, and there had been no wide debate, and she'd come up with a hard Brexit position, there would be very little we could have done about it, because that would have been the government's pledge. But the debate is now more wide open, and it gives a chance for the public generally to look more closely at precisely what it is the British are trying to do.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, May I turn to you then, Sylvia? Do you think we're asleep walking to a hard Brexit? I mean, is this the best that we can do? Is this a good deal for Europe? President Hollande himself advocated for a very hard stance on the UK.
3: Is this what we should do? Well, thank you. First of all, as you notice, I'm not Francois Hollande, so I'm just talking on behalf of myself. Uh, and I will try to, uh, to give uh, a personal opinion from the European Parliament and not only from France. Um, well, after Theresa May's speech, uh, things are clear on some points. I, I leave the fact that there might be something in the court, that there might be Westminster. Let's say what she's saying is going to, to be uh, the British position. Um, by triggering Article 50, by announcing that she would trigger Article 50, she is making, she's giving the clear signal that she wants the European Parliament to give the consent to the agreement which is something that went unnoticed, as far as I know, in the British discussion. But it means that there will be an agreement according to this article, and this artic- and this agreement will have to be adopt- approved in the European Parliament. So, at least, it, it's, I'm not saying this for institutional reasons, but I think for the citizens of Europe, it's very important. I remember during the campaign, Michael Gove playing with the idea uh, the UK could uh, find other ways to leave the EU, etc., and it is very important that we can have this discussion, as you say, and that we take the coming months to, to see what we can have. One of the aspects is on the separation itself, on, on the divorce. And here I would say that the positions are quite clear on the continent and in the UK, according to Mrs May's speech, which is that uh, as the British government seems to refuse the free movement of people Uh, the uh, enforcement through the ICJ, there is little chance that we can uh, keep uh, the UK inside the single market, and I insist on that. This is one of the main misunderstandings we experienced with the UK since the 1970s. If you remember, in the 1950s, the UK refused to join the discussions on coal and steel because of the supranational elements included in it. Since the 1970s, and it was even clear in the Bloomberg speech of Cameron, there is uh, this ambiguity on what exactly the market is. And here I'm very happy that uh, quite all the heads of states and government and Draghi in the Econ Committee and Juncker and and so many others stressed that the four freedoms are a package, and that you need common rules and common enforcement if you want to be part of, of it. Uh, Saying this is not uh, being negative or aggressive or whatever, it is just the the correct interpretation of Article 50. Article 50 foresees the right for a country to leave the EU. Article 50 does not foresee the right to change the nature of the EU by leaving, which is a huge difference. And actually, if you look at the the agreement uh, concluded in February, uh, February by Cameron, this was the possibility to stay inside with an even more privileged position. And this was refused by the British people, or considered not enough a reason to stay in the EU. So all, on all this, I'm quite sure that um, we are not united on the continent because we are uh, suddenly capable of unity, but it is, it is really the, the, the core of what was built, And I would even add something that might surprise you, but I'm quite sure that for the eurozone countries, nobody knows what will happen to the euro in the future. Uh, It is still fragile, we still have to reform, we still have to improve the system. But maybe it is because of the euro that we are here where we are. Because it was clear, and I have observed this on many files in the European Parliament, that the UK was not at ease. The the message spread by by Tony Blair, we want to stay in the driving seat, etc., etc., was less credible when, of course, you have such a project that requires supranational elements. Of course, I would not say that uh, in France, in Germany, in Italy, and everywhere, everybody is completely at ease with the supranational nature. But if the euro is to survive, it will have to be... Uh, to be backed by even more supranational elements of uh, law-making, of enforcement, of risk-sharing, of budget, etc. So it is clear that now we are observing a divergence that, in my opinion, goes beyond Brexit. And it will be also a question for our countries, because the discussion is very much focusing on, on the UK, what is the UK thinking, what is May saying, but of course part of the answer is on the other side. Then uh, another w- uh, a word on not the divorce, but the future relationship. And here, um, I really appreciate what, what what you just said, because I was really scared by the speech of Theresa May in Birmingham, not on the European side, not on the European aspects, but on what it means for the relationship of the British population with itself, uh, the, the openness. The, the idea that uh, uh, The prime minister of the UK is saying that citizens of the world are citizens of nowhere, uh, that all we believe in, and here I must say it's not at all schadenfreude. I really think that we are facing a challenge. Wherever we come from, either we manage to defend an open society in which of course you have to put some Uh, rules and barriers and regulate migration, etc. But where you really believe that human capital is of the utmost importance and that you improve the quality of your companies, of your political system, of your societies by mixing people with different origins, respecting the rules, the rule of law, no doubt on that. But either we stick to this or we are all going to enter with uh, Le Pen in France, with the AfD in Germany, with some others in Italy, and et cetera, et cetera. Then we, we would enter a phase in which the type of society we believe in is going to be in danger. And that's the reason why, for me, it's difficult to look at the future relationship beyond the divorce, if the divorce is coming and happening, and I was for a remain. Um, do we believe that foreign investment can make us richer and stronger? Can we do we believe that uh, some foreigners can be researchers and and and, and, and 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 an added value for our societies, etc.? And all this, I had the feeling, and you know, I'm sharing the intergroup fighting against poverty in the European Parliament. I remember some discussions in the Franco-British colloque with the aides of Cameron, et cetera, on all these issues of rising inequalities. Uh, feeling of uh, overwhelming globalization, migration, etc. The, the very sad thing is that maybe there were some solutions in the UK by some changes in the politics in the UK without leaving the European Union. And that the way uh, May is describing what she intends to do after Brexit seems to me something that could have happened without going so far. And it is also a lesson for all of us. We should be very humble. What happened in the UK could happen elsewhere. And, uh, and we should really be aware that what is at stake is to defend our Western open societies. And a very last word, she insisted only in where well, we will remain friends and allies. But do you really, uh, do you think it's easy to die for people you cannot make business with? what about article five of the nato treaty if one day it has to be triggered for one eastern european country for example what what will be the result of all these years of negotiations divorce etc so i think i hope that in the coming months we can defend what is important for us and on the side of the european parliament we will defend the integrity of the single market the enforcement by the court of justice the common rules and also Uh, A symmetrical solution, whatever the solution, should not be asymmetrical. That's the reason why I disagreed so much with the non-Bruegel paper written by by Guntram. But uh, non-discrimination. But above all this, there is something more. It is the, the question of the type of society we want to live in, and maybe also our security.
0: I'm sure we'll come to that, and also with the reaction of Europe, but Lionel, you want to, uh, do you want to... Rec- well,
1: I, uh, afterwards, after Guntram. Oh, after Guntram, yes. I just want to re- reply to the rootlessness charge.
0: <laughs> okay, you'll have a chance to do that, I'm sure. But I, I would like to stay then with the European reaction, Guntram, and bring you in. And Sylvie actually mentioned the need for reform, which I'm sure there's, there will be a lot of agreement on this issue. But before we even reform, do you think there is a, a danger of actually disintegrating right. in Europe?
4: Well, so let me, let me start by uh, referring to uh, the changing tone that, that Lionel was, was referring to and he used British understatement, calling it surprising. I will use uh, a German bluntness and say that I found it actually quite shocking and, in fact, appalling. Uh, I think the increase, in, the increase in, in homophobic attacks and xenophobic attacks that we've seen uh, in the UK is something that is really worrying. And that's something that I think also will make, uh, make uh, discussions um, with European partners much, much more difficult. It seems to me that one of the first priorities now really needs to be to find a good deal for the citizens on both sides. Um, so we need to uh, be sure that the rights acquired by uh, EU citizens in the UK and conversely UK citizens in the EU Get protected because we don't want this divorce to be so ugly that actually the children suffer too much. And I think that that is something I think we really should put on quite quite some emphasis. Now a lot has been said already. I think uh, Theresa May's speech um, is of course uh, very important. And um, if we take the lines that she has drawn in the in the sand as unmovable. Um, I think indeed um, membership in the single market will become uh, impossible. And the reason is is quite simply, to my mind, um, the the, the fact that supranational enforcement of rules is an absolute necessity for deep economic integration. You cannot have um, uh, companies uh, trading freely in an economic area where one company uh, can get state aid under a different state aid regime than a company in another part of the economic area. So, quite frankly, I think the enforcement of rules, including by the European Court of Justice or uh, a a similar uh, uh, body, is absolutely uh, essential, as are the rules themselves. Um, Now, uh, then I think... um, Perhaps another comment, quick comment on the on the China Road that James was was alluding to. I think uh, this is absolutely not a possibility. I mean, we we've put out a paper doing some simulations, and you see very quickly that. Um, uh, the UK will not be able to replace uh, the trade um, it is doing currently with the EU, uh, with uh, you know, third countries. But conversely also, of course, Europeans have an interest ultimately in the long term to preserve as much of the economic relationship um, as we can, um, because uh, let 's not forget uh, we also export a lot there, um, and we don 't only export we, we trade in services, we have universities uh, collaboration, and so on and so the West and you know uh, let 's say the Western world or Europe will be weaker if we have a much uh, a, a very ugly divorce so uh, it seems to me we need to find the right balance between a very ugly divorce. Um, and, uh, and one that would sacrifice our principles. And, and I guess that's where uh, Sylvie and I have, have, a, have a disagreement, um, where I think that um, on the free movement of workers, um, uh, there is a possibility to, uh, to put some limits on it for countries outside of the European Union. And let me be very clear, it's only for countries outside of the European Union, inside the European Union, it is a part of uh, the uh, the political agreement, it is a political achievement, and it's actually a political benefit and an economic benefit to have that kind of mobility. But I do think that um, we can have a very deep economic integration in goods, but also in services, without a 100% uh, uh, free movement uh, of, of workers. Last point, um, and Sylvie, you mentioned um, the non-Euro-area countries, um, and you know that the eurozone uh, uh, forging ahead has perhaps also played a role in pushing the UK uh, UK out at some level. I do think that uh, one of the key priorities for the European Union going forward will be to think very carefully about um, the policies uh, we are implementing and that these policies are not to the detriment of the current uh, outs from the Eurozone. Um, uh, And I think it would also be a mistake um, to, to now push them sort of overnight, now that the Brits are not with us anymore, or once they are not with us anymore. To say, look, now you have to join within a few years. I think that doesn't make much sense. Uh, uh, let countries join the eurozone at their speed, political speed, and also at um, the speed of economic development. I don't think it makes sense to to force them too prematurely to join the euro. Thank you very much.
0: Well, thank you very much, Guntram. I'm going to ask you for some quick reactions, Lionel. You wanted to react to, yeah. uh, but can I also ask you? Guntram is talking about the divorce. And what is, in your view, and also James, your views on the red lines here? What are the British red lines in this, as we're coming into the discussions of the divorce?
1: Uh, I'll leave the red lines to James. (laughs) Uh, I I can talk about that. But I I want to say a few words here about uh, Theresa May's speech. And to make it clear to everybody in this room that I am not carrying water for Downing Street or Mrs. May.
2: I say that, nor am
1: I. It's <laughs> <laughs> good enough. Thank
0: you. Thank you for clarifying
1: that. So, but, le- but let's just get a bit of perspective here. Britain is not going back to the 1930s. Some of the reaction and remarks in the wake of the June 23rd referendum were distasteful, uh... shameful but this is the result of referendum campaigns this is what happens when you take away responsibilities from representative government now Theresa May's speech was not aimed at this audience it wasn't aimed at the financial times either or indeed the financial markets. It was aimed at the people who voted for Brexit. It was aimed at the people in that hall, who for whatever reasons feel marginalized, ignored, and who are deeply suspicious of the European Union and are frightened about immigration. And by the way, a lot of those fears are shared by people on this continent. We're not the only people who've suffered from xenophobic attacks. If you have the most serious migration crisis since the late 1940s and the kind of radical Islamic terrorist attacks, which you've suffered worse than us, but we had in 7-7, this undoubtedly stokes people's fears. They're real. And Mrs. May, who by the way, the most important thing you need to know about Mrs. May, is that she's a securocrat. She spent six years in the Home Office worrying about terrorist attacks and immigration. This forms her worldview. If you asked her two of the most important countries in the world, she wouldn't say America and China, she'd say Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. So this is where she's coming from. Now, the other point to bear in mind is look at what's happened to British politics in the last five years. One, the implosion of the Labour Party and the election of a radical, hard left leader. Two, nationalism increasing. By the way, look at Scotland. I mean, David Cameron got lucky on that referendum. But these are real things. The Scottish nationalism has been reawakened. There's been too much centralization in British politics, in the governance of Britain. All these things are reasons why you had a vote against Europe. Last point, citizens of the world, Uh, I mean, and, and rootlessness. This was a badly drafted speech. Whoever wrote it or co-wrote it should be taken to the woodshed, <laughs> or even better, come to my office, and we can actually s- tell you how to write a speech. Which actually you have to bear in mind: the currency. The, there is a thing called financial markets that are watching for every word, including business. But if we're talking about rootlessness, maybe we should also think about how companies have behaved, how they've, ex- how they've. Yes, been in line with the tax system, but they paid next to no tax. And there's a certain rootlessness there where where companies have not been rooted in the community because we've been living in the age of globalisation. Now, the big question is, has globalisation peaked? Are we going to go back? If Britain is moving, maybe. What we certainly know, and where Mrs. May is correct, but she's not expressed it well enough, is that certain aspects of globalization, that you can't have a complete free-for-all. So yes, in conclusion, it is true that Notting Hill is not running Britain anymore. It's Northamptonshire. And if you've ever been there, it's very different from Notting Hill. Yeah,
0: thank you, Lionel. James? Uh, you asking
1: about red lines. Yes. I also to pick up on yes, yes, please. Um,
2: Mrs May has said three <coughs> things, basically. There are three, three things one has to focus on. One, Article 50 by the end of March. That's hard. We're out by the spring of 2019. The second thing is no ECJ jurisdiction. That's really important because it means no membership of the single market. I think in the Bruegel paper, You came up, I think, with a very elegant way of approaching this question on the ECJ, basically saying there are certain areas in which there has to be some jurisdiction, and if you're going to have single market access for financial services, then you have to accept some of it. Not everything. You can perhaps monitor ECJ laws in the House of Commons and have perhaps a bit more power to look at But Anyway, I think you, you tried to bring a compromise on that. She seems to completely rule that out, so that is worrying. On immigration, The rhetoric is hard, and by and large, as Lionel said, unspeakable from from last week. As you said, Sylvie, this stuff about citizen of the world has no citizen at their home is, is, I mean, I think somebody should read some history books. But anyway, that's clearly appalling. Actually, in hard terms, what the British are saying on migration is still very fluid. Sorry, things are very fluid. we, she has said we're not going to have a work permit system, an Australian-style work permit system, so that's our Australian-style point system. We're going to move to a work permit system, but exactly how that is defined is still very much up for debate. If you read an article by William Hague last week in the Daily Telegraph, who is an important person to listen to because he's, he's an authoritative figure still in the, par, in the party, even if he's not in parliament, he wants something very loose. Every European citizen who can show that they have a job, whether skilled or unskilled, will get a work permit. Now, that's really only one step below what we currently have. However, there are, as you, you, you could see, and, and, and alongside that, you've also got ministers lining up and saying, well, okay, we're going to have control of migration, but we need to have a... Um, We need to have special measures for specific sectors, like the financial services. Hammond has spoken about. Sajid Rav Javid, another minister, has said we need to have special privileges for construction workers. But then you've got other ministers who say, we can't allow any foreign doctors into the country. We need to train up our own. So it's all very fluid. There's lots of rhetoric, but I'm still unsure where that is going to land. And if the Hague point comes through, then it is actually pointing towards a soft Brexit. Um, I very much agree with something you said, uh, Sylvie, which is that if one takes a hard look, look, a look back over time, the period before the referendum, many of the things which led to a no vote are the product of domestic public policy failure in the UK, which we should have (coughs) dealt with, rather than the European Union. We don't build enough houses. We have a secondary school system that doesn't work properly. We don't spend enough money on infrastructure. We have, as Lionel has said, a country which is heavily centered on the south with a much more impoverished north. All those things require strong direction. And where Mrs. May is right is, she says, you actually need a strong state to deal with that. You need more state intervention. And if she's addressing those points, I understand and sympathize with it. My problem is that if you want to have a strong state, it's also going to be a state that's got money. And if you're going down a separate set of policies which basically say we're going to shrink the city of London and we're going to cut uh, tax revenues by 10 billion pounds a year, you're not going to have the money to bring about the kind of change you want. So there is a fundamental contradiction between what I think is her justified approach to reconfiguring the balance in the UK economy and the way she is approaching things vis-a-vis in the international scene.
0: Thank you. The immediate reactions?
3: No I, mean, no, I was thinking that this week, the French magazine Le Point put Mrs. Thatcher on the front page, which is amazing because I have the feeling that our countries are moving through cycles where you might rediscover the state when the French but don't worry, it will not happen, seem to rediscover the market. But this was just a small joke. Uh, uh, as, as a French liberal, one of the things I'm afraid of is not that for the UK there is a rebalance, it is that how people who live already in a country where maybe the state is too, uh, too present or are going to use this type of argument. But this is a, a very French remark. No, you know what the... the <laughs> The truth is that if you look at rootlessness and all the the arguments behind, who tried in the last months and years to do something against cross-border finance or tax evasion? We voted in the European Parliament against the bonuses of the bankers, and at that time it was hugely criticised in London, we were considered the ones not understanding anything to life, etc. But no one paid tribute to that in the British discussion. And look right now how the Commission, Margaret Vestager, took a decision at a supranational level to try to put some order again for uh, fighting against tax evasion. So one of the tricky things in all this debate is that sometimes, and it will be exactly the same in France and elsewhere on the continent, I'm not putting the putting the blame on the UK, sometimes we accuse or we put the blame on Brussels, Europe, etc. for things that are national competences and where we could be better at a national level, education, infrastructure, etc., as you said, sometimes we don't even realize that the right scale to take some decisions, uh, for example, uh, on on tax evasion of big companies, is rather a bigger one than the national, because if you look at what is remaining from the so-called sovereignty of the member states, Ireland is more or less obliged to uh, go to court against the decision of the commission, and the other member states have lost their f- their tax sovereignty uh, in the same way. So this is one of the tricky things. Either we manage to have a discussion, that's the reason why the red lines are not lines, they are curves, or... Either we discuss from reality, where we see what should be done at the national level, what could be done at the European level, and we leave a little bit all the the, the the how can I say the illusion around all this and maybe we can find a good solution and I hope and I want to insist Guntram, I do believe of course that we have to find the best possible solution. The simple thing is that I don't believe that we will find a good solution if we destroy the fundaments, the, the basis of the single market and the jurisdiction of uh, the EU as it is. Because at the end, it's the rule of law. And to be honest, I don't think, James, that we can find something that recognises the, the jurisdiction of the course of justice half. You cannot be half pregnant, you cannot have a half rule of law. You really need either to accept that you are part of a game with rules and a broker, or you are from outside having a relationship. Yes.
4: No, I mean uh, on the last point, let me just um, totally agree with with Sylvie. I mean, the, what we say also in our paper is, I mean, you have to have a hundred percent jurisdiction um, that applies, because otherwise, I mean, in, if you just have it in some sectors or so, on, it doesn't work. I mean, it really has to be pretty comprehensive and pretty far-reaching, and uh, and in that sense, uh, you know, I think. Theresa May's uh, red line, if that is not moved, I think, will we'll make it basically I- impossible for, um, uh, for deep integration, including in financial services, as we have it currently. But let me add uh, two, uh, two quick other considerations. One is uh, on the issue of, of fairness and uh, the t- taxation. And I think this is really, to my mind, one of the arguments why we should strive actually to have some sort of a deal which keeps the UK actually quite inside our circle. Because um, once they are outside, um, possibilities for uh, uh, dumping policies uh, and so on can actually be uh, significantly bigger. So I think we have, as a European player, we we should have an interest in extending um, our regulatory power um, and uh, judicial power to the largest extent possible, and that's also one reason why. Uh, uh, I have advocated a relatively soft and close relation uh, with the UK after Brexit. Uh, My last point is uh, and and James you talked about um, the development of the UK economy and that the UK economy needs a lot of supply side reforms helping the north and so on and that the resources wouldn't be there now there's one, um, once Brexit happens and the financial industry moves now there's one counter argument which is of course uh, the exchange rate and um, we know that the exchange rate is now down 16% or so since June 2022 uh, against the euro and that is a very significant boost to, uh, to the the competitiveness of of british industry and it seems to me that uh, perhaps uh, what we are seeing here is a correction to uh, a, a previous comparative advantage that uh, uh, was resi- uh, sorry uh, a, a sort of a dutch disease kind of problem resulting from the strong financial sector that the UK had um, and that uh, is now getting corrected. So actually um, with, a, with a weaker financial sector, your exchange rate will be weaker uh, and therefore perhaps some of the other industries uh, can strive more easily.
0: Well, if I can add to this, that the UK has got a current account deficit. So that adds a completely different type of problem actually to this adjustment that you're saying. But uh, let's open up the floor. I'm sure there's a lot of questions that... Uh, Let's collect two or three questions from here at the front here.
5: Kurt Geisert, uh, external speaker of the European Commission. I would like to come back to the remark of Mr. Barber that the referendum took away responsibility from the House of Commons. Uh, in '72, the House of Commons said, we want to get in. <laughs> Is it, not nece- is it not necessary that at a certain stage, before finally leaving, the House of Commons says, we want to get out?
0: Thank you. The question
6: over there? Yeah. Lars Orland, formally with the Commission. As a subscriber of the FT, let me take this opportunity to congratulate you for an excellent, high-quality newspaper, having some voice of reason in a, a world as crazy as it is with Brexit, Trump, Putin, and I don't know what. My point I would like to make is that in relation to Mrs. May's speech, and I suppose if you look around the room, you won't have anybody here in favor of Brexit, so don't misunderstand me. Don't you think that what May has done is politically extremely astute? UKIP is in tatters, labor is also in difficulties, So what she's done is basically to cover the whole ground, political ground, former former UKIP uh, voters, a lot of labor voters, and where does business have uh, other place to go? There is only the Conservative Party. So politically, I think it's extremely astute what she's done. I don't agree with it. Nobody in this room agrees with a hard Brexit, which is what uh, it's all looking towards. I was in charge of standards in, in agriculture, veterinary. Tariffs do play a role, but if the UK population wants to pay 10% more for BMWs, I don't think it's going to make that big a difference. What makes a big difference is the question of standards, the rules on which you trade. And there, the UK can easily, simply adopt, as we go along changing our legislation, the same standards. So you have mutual recognition. So that's really where the important difference lies, whether you're in or outside. And lastly, financial sector, financial services, passporting, you can easily circumvent that problem by having a subsidiary within the uh, EU. So I don't think necessarily the economic consequences are so obvious. I'm not in favor of it but I'm not so uh, sure about the consequences. Thank
1: you. Thank you for those generous remarks. Is that a job application for the new
0: trade? And one more question here at the front. I'll I'll answer it. Yeah. Here at the front, Lisa.
7: Thank you. Um, Peter Klepper from Open Europe. My question to the panel is, um, well, first of all, I don't think it's that surprising at all that uh, Theresa May says, the UK shouldn't be subjected to the ECJ. The opposite would um, would surprise. Um, and it would be extremely surprising if Britain would now give up its voting rights and, and turn into uh, Norway. So um, I think it's it's all what we could expect. Um, my question to the panel is the following. Um, in two years' time, the question will be whether, whether we'll have some kind of a five-year temporary arrangement whereby Britain sort of gives up its... Uh, voting rights for five years it strikes me as very unrealistic but um, maybe I'm wrong or if we'll just see an extension of Article 50 until um, the day that Britain can enter its new uh, status so what do you think of the two outcomes is the most uh, likely thank you
0: okay well let's uh, I think we should start with okay. uh, with you uh,
1: let, let me just take that and James may want to come in uh, it was always uh, it's completely inconceivable that Britain would agree to a Norway-style deal because you'd essentially be paying into the budget, having free movement, and still be subject to the ECJ. So you're quite right. I, I do think that Mrs May's comments about the ECJ are a red line, but this is a first position and what they uh, think will be looking for is some kind of bespoke arrangement to be defined, and the devil really is in the detail, and they want and need transition agreements. That word has just not appeared so far, but it's gonna appear. Now, of course, it'll be really difficult. It's gonna be really bumpy. The European uh, 27 will have their say, but this is where we're heading, okay? Uh, Second, on the Parliament, again James may want to come in as a constitutional expert here, but uh, look, I don't see the Parliament having a vote on Article 50, because it's it's being tested in court uh, this week with the Attorney General. He's up against 50 lawyers, apparently. Uh, But the Parliament, in their infinite wisdom, voted six to one in favor of a referendum. And just in case anybody is in any doubt, uh, the Financial Times accepts there was a vote, they won, we lost. We're not trying to turn back Brexit. And in fact, it's incredibly counterproductive to suggest as much. It's wrong. Now, two, three years down the track, by the way, it could be quicker. If we really careen towards a hard <clears throat> Brexit, I would very much hope, very much hope, that the Parliament, just as the European Parliament, mustn't forget the European Parliament, by the way, you won't sell a lot of newspapers <laughs> setting try. up the Please
8: try.
4: But,
1: <laughs> but the point is, yeah, the Parliament as the European Parliament should have a vote on the ultimate deal must have a vote, well, we'll see what happens. Then just just finally on Theresa May and occupying the center ground, I had a a conversation with Sir Tim Bell after the first television debate with David Cameron against Michael Gove, and I thought Cameron did very badly. And Tim Bell said to me, you know, one of the reasons we got a chance is because Blair just had this huge, fudgy, middle ground, center ground, and essentially, the extremes, or the, the people in the fringes were ignored, and that fringe has got increasingly frustrated to the point where we are now. I think that it was tactically, tactically astute for Mrs. May to, do, to say what she did last week. But, in strategic terms, in the way it was viewed outside, was very damaging. So, uh, and I, I want to emphasize, that speech was delivered for those political reasons. It's about positioning a prime minister who is unelected, right, elected by the party, but not in the election, not in a general election, who's got very specific new ideas not sanctioned in the manifesto about the future direction of the country. She wanted to set out her stall, so this was a great way of doing it. But it ignores the outside world. Question is, how is this change in tone and some of the things, the ideas that she has, going to translate into policy? That is the key question for business and for the future strength or not of the UK economy.
0: But if I may pick on a point you said that two years down the line, the parliament needs to approve of the deal that would have cut. I said
1: should hopefully approve. I mean, I'd be shocked, even appalled.
0: (laughs) But what kind of dynamics does it set? Because I mean, two years down the line, uh, what incentives does this side of the channel have to strike a good deal? Well, suppose it's not a good deal. And suppose it's not accepted by the Parliament, then what? Well, Let me
2: just sort of... go. Just to, to add to what Vian yeah. said. The situation as it stands is, is as follows. There will be a vote in the House of Commons and in the House of Lords on what is called the Great Repeal Bill, which is a piece of legislation which will bring the acquis back into UK law and then allow ministers to strike out what they don't want. That bill will also repeal the 1972 European Communities Act. The problem is that vote is going to come very, very late in the process. Okay? It's going to come, it's Queen's speech for the next, so it's well after she invokes Article 50. And the argument that MPs are making is that's far too late. Now, they are not going to be able to have a vote to get what they want, which is, a, I don't think, which is a vote on Article 50 itself and the act of invoking. That's not gonna happen. The Supreme Court does have to make a judgment on it. I'd be absolutely astonished if the Supreme Court took on the Prime Minister on a matter of this gravity. So that's not gonna happen. What MPs are saying, however, and have started to say today is, okay, we don't do that, but we've gotta have a say on what the content of the letter is in terms of is it a soft Brexit or a hard Brexit? Should we be leaving the European single market? Can we make a statement about how close our relations are? And that debate in Parliament is quite important because they may have the numbers. I mean, she has a majority of 12 plus eight Ulster Unionist MPs. It's only 20. I could certainly name 20 Conservative MPs who don't like that speech (laughs) and don't like the way things are going. So she has... That is a very interesting debate now to watch, and it's also important because what is happening in Cabinet is that Hammond, the Chancellor, is fighting pretty hard on the single market side against Fox, Davis, and the others. And it's not absolutely sure that he's winning. And if he can see, if he is allowed, to, we are allowed to see that there is a big fuss <coughs> happening outside which is backing that view, plus what's happening on Sterling, it may have an impact on what the Article 50 letter says. Because the key point is it's a really important point this. Once the Article 50 letter is written, it's not only telling the Europeans what her position is, but it's a pledge to the British people. And while there may be give and take, as she says, she's committed to that. So it's really important how the debate develops between now and the end of March. On the other point that was made, is she politically astute? It's certainly true that she is master mistress of the field at the moment. Labour, is still in the doldrums unlikely to be elected in my lifetime UKIP I don't Steady know what <laughs> <laughs> UKIP um, I don't know what UKIP is anymore <laughs> I mean but it's certainly going through in the deep doldrums so she is at the, at the, at the, at the head of a very wide consensus in, in in the political sphere the trouble is she's got to carry everybody and The Conservative Party is, is on the issue of Europe, still split. You see it in the the Daniel Hannan article today in the FD. It's still split between those who think immigration is the key issue and those who think that the defence of the free market is the key issue. And there are different interpretations. She needs to come up with a solution that carries those two wings. And the risk is that if she looks like she's going down one road, the immigration road, excessively and ending ECJ, she is going to fracture the party. And that ultimately is what the Hammond versus Fox debate is about inside the cabinet. Do we stay in the single market? Do we leave the customs union? She needs to carry all that. And I'm not sure at the moment that her tactics lead her to that outcome.
0: Some comments,
4: uh, Sylvie? So so just uh, just two quick points. One is on uh, the future arrangement trade agreement. I mean, let's not forget that trade agreements nowadays are very difficult to negotiate, um, very difficult to negotiate. We've been negotiating CETA for seven years almost, and guess what? It's not yet passed, because we made a big mistake to my mind by by giving um, national and even regional parliaments now a say on, on trade matters, um, and that could actually be the same for any future trade deal with the UK. I mean, we may actually get stuck in, in the situation where after years of negotiation, we have a have a new trade agree, agreement uh, uh, finally signed by the Commission um, and by the British government, but then comes the parliamentary approval uh, process. The European Parliament approves it, but the Volunian Parliament doesn't like it for whatever reason, uh, and we end up without a trade deal uh, with the UK. So there, I think there is a quite a significant risk there. Um, but uh, I think there is um, certainly a necessity, uh, therefore, to, to think about some form of a transition, a transition agreement. And um, I think the, the one area where I would be positive on Mrs. May's speech is that in the Great Repeal Act, uh, she also wants to uh, settle clearly that all EU law be transformed into uh, British law. Um, so in other, in other words, on the 1st of April, uh, of uh, 2019 which will be the the moment when the most likely moment when the UK will be outside of the European Union at that moment uh, the body of regulation will look actually very very comparable on both sides of of, of the channel uh, perhaps even identical and that could be a, a road uh, for managing a, a, a soft transition uh, but of course it would have to be negotiated in a very very clear way but i think there is at least some scope there
3: Maybe just one word of what you just said. To be honest, for all lawyers, you don't need to introduce the EU law in the national law because it is already the case. So, okay, from a tactical point of view, it's fine, but it was not necessary. But if I may, don't take the picture for the movie. You can have the same rules when a country is leaving, at the D-Day, but it does not mean that that they cannot diverge. I would quite say that we have heard so many times we want to get back control of our rules, etc. that the purpose of all this is to make the rules diverge. So on financial issues, we cannot accept just that because, let's say in 2019, the picture is the same, we can uh, get rid of the movie. So either there is I a mechanism... Is a tr- okay, trans- now... I mean, yeah, you can manage a transition, but here I would like to answer to the, your question. Uh, on the, the, the two-year period, first of all, it's clear that Article 50 foresees a time frame. Okay? It can be uh, prolonged, but then you, it requires the unanimity of the 28. One plus, hey, unanimity is not always easy to get. Huh? If you lose one, and remember that many countries that are going to lose access for their citizens to the single, to, to the labor market in the UK, that was part of their... Accessions conditions etc. So, don't believe it is. It's not granted. It can be the case, but it can also not be the case. And we will be in a time where you might have some uh, strange governments uh, anywhere. So, uh, first of all, if you want to prolong, you need the unanimity. The second thing, a provision, provisional, uh, transitory period, whatever you call it. The key question is how does it work with the right to conclude trade deals? Because if you see the point, as long as the UK is a member of the European Union, it is not allowed to negotiate and conclude trade deals, let's say with Australia, okay, or China. So as long as you are part of it, and Juncker made rightly, in my opinion, a remark when obviously may begin to discuss with Australia. In, uh, when she was in China etc. As long as you are in, you have all the advantages of being in, but you are part of the agreements concluded by the EU, you cannot deal on a bilateral uh, way. Then there is a very strong incentive for the UK not to have a too long period in which they cannot... So, Of course all this, as you said, the evil is in the details, it can be settled, but keep this in mind. Uh, for the passporting, the internal uh, relationship, etc., it might be good, for the external uh, trade negotiation capacity of the UK and of the EU on its side, it might be uh, it's go there. But I just wanted to make a very last remark. We have reached a point in all our democracies where the very interesting thing is that many politicians don't think that when they talk, and it might be from a tactical point of view, a masterpiece, hein, the way May talk to her audience, Well, but it is web streamed elsewhere in the world. So you cannot say one thing to your population and one thing to the industry or in the U.S. or when you're in Paris, etc. And we have observed, of course, the U.K. is not Greece, I'm not making a comparison. But remember Tsipras, it was a little bit the same kind of thing. Tsipras was always discussing and sending messages to his constituency. Not thinking that, of course, in Germany or elsewhere, you had people listening to what he was saying. And when you are interdependent, of course, you have to take into account the both sides. Of course, you are elected in your country, so very often they give the priority to the local debate. But one day you realize that the reality is what it is, that you are part of deals, that you are a member of uh, several groups of states, etc. Thank you very much. Let's take a second round of questions. There is uh, here, Andre.
5: Yeah, m- my question is for Sylvie and Lionel, um, and it's taking precisely this, this this last point that you made, uh, Sylvie. Um, I mean, m- my my worry about the the speech is not so much about the E C J, uh, although it's a fundamental issue. I mean, it's a issue that needs to be discussed, needs to be negotiated. The other one is more, I think, the tone uh, of the speech, and. Uh, That was the appalling part. It was not what the statement about ECJ, I I would not put that as appalling. I would say, you know, it's a red line, and you know, what do we negotiate? But on what was appalling, it sort of was the the general tone that was said. And my question to to, to the both of you um, I I think you you, you do share uh, the view that, you know, we can get into a real uh, lose-lose uh, scenario here. Uh, it's bad for uh, for the UK, and we have heard that. It's bad for for Europe. Uh, now, we should not underestimate the fact that hard Brexit is what we heard at the moment in the UK, but that there is also in the EU27 those who welcome the hard Brexit approach, and for, for different reasons, either because uh, they dream of that for themselves. Let's say the anti-Europeans uh, inside some of the of the EU countries that feel that you know uh, the UK is, is showing the way and we should do the same thing, or those who have more narrow uh, viewpoint of sort of competitiveness. You know, <laughs> we are going to recuperate some of the interesting pieces that we leave, some in the investment that we leave uh, the uh, the UK. So there may be a coalition out there on the continent. Um, that says, hey, uh, you know, Mrs. May says uh, hard Brexit, great. Uh, Let's take this really at face value, and she has said ugly stuff, we believe. Let's sort of reinforce that. So my question to the both of you is, and as you said, Sylvie, I mean, we hear on the continent what is being said in the UK, even though it may be for domestic consumption, but it may have repercussions on the uh, politics uh, on the continent. And we may get into a very vicious circle that, you know, there is a hard Brexit being pronounced there, ugly stuff. Well, there may be ugly stuff being pronounced on the continent that will also be heard back in the UK, and we go sort of a, to a ratcheting effect. So how do, we, how do we stop that if we believe that we need to stop that to prevent the, the lose-lose uh, scenario?
0: Thank you, Andrew. Is here a question.
9: Thank you. Uh, Phil Middleton from uh, EY. Uh, Brexit is just one of the massive challenges facing the EU at the moment. If we could just put it to one side, uh, could I ask the the, the panel's view on their five-year vision for the EU27, if you like? You have these fractal planes developing at the moment between members of the Eurozone, non-members of the Eurozone. Those in favour of austerity, those against austerity, Uh, those in favor of immigration, those against immigration. There are a whole number of different visions of what Europe might be um, welling up uh, and are going to come to the fore in a whole range of elections, uh, certainly over the next 18 months. And in many ways, the EU's been (coughs) too successful. Uh, Its post-war record has been achieved, it's had phenomenal success, both in political arena and the economic arena. And there's a sense of it, it is casting around for what next. So I suppose my question is, do you see things continuing, muddling along as they are? Do you see a two-speed Europe? Do you see an integrated federal, United Federal States of Europe, perhaps detaching one or two other countries? Um, what is your vision? Where do, you, where do you see it going?
0: Thank you. Uh, any more questions or we can bring it back to... Oh, here, we just got one third question here. Uh, we can just hear, hear the from Next, Andrew. Thanks
8: very much. Donald Ricketts from Flash Hillard. James, you were saying that the good thing about the May speech is that it opens up a genuine debate on the options facing the British with Brexit. But when I hear this conversation, it's hard to see what real options there are for the UK. Implicit in that is that there is a version of events which could lead to a soft Brexit, which means continued membership of a single market, presumably some sort of jurisdiction of the ECJ. Presumably, then, there would be a desire for some continued involvement in the rulemaking, whatever the implications are in terms of votes, that would be. There would need to be budget contributions involved in that. So we go down a route which looks like we're reversing the outcome of the referendum. Is there a, and I'd like to hear from the panel, is there a version of events which actually is recognizable and credible, which is a soft Brexit? Does it just involve new, a hardened version of the Cameron Deal on immigration controls? But from what we're hearing, it sounds like that's not on the table. What is a soft Brexit when we say "soft Brexit?
0: James, can we ask you to start first? This
8: <laughs> start off with the hard one. I don't yeah. deny
2: it. What is the situation? Uh, well, we know what May has ruled. We, we, just to go through what she has ruled out, as Lionel said, EEA is out, and she is—that's that, very clear for the reasons that, that he set out. Namely, we would be rule takers, not rule makers. Um, we would have to contribute to the EU budget. Although, notice the EU budget contribution this year is one that is no longer discussed. In the UK, that is something which the British are now considering putting on the table. Um, so there is that. And on the other side, I assume that when she says we're not going to take what's already there, we're not going to ha- we're going to for a bespoke deal that we're not going to fall onto WTO. So we're looking at an FTA of some kind. Um, now, the issue of migration controls is clearly a difficult one. You've raised it in the Bruegel paper. But my assumption is that we would be looking for something which is a little bit harder than what Cameron was offered,, okay, as you have said. So there'd be something along those lines. In return, there would, this is what I think ideally people would want the U.K. to do. We'd go down the road of, on financial services. Um, we're not going to want equivalents in the U.K. We're going to want and we're, we're not going to be necessarily members of the single market, but we would like a deal which is going to create some kind of situation in which there is very privileged access, but at the same time, some kind of discussion between the UK and the EU27 on rules. So we aren't rule-takers on on that. So that is a possibility. So that is something that they would go for. Now, it's stretched. I'm not suggesting it's easy, but that is the kind of area that one would want to go down. Uh, Now, at the moment, all I'm saying is... I think she said something very hard on ECJ. I, I, I'm interested to hear what Andre is saying, that actually you think that is negotiable. That, that's interesting. That, that, that there might be some movement, I don't know. But those are the kind of sensible things that one might, one might go for. And that is, I think, the kind of debate that has to happen. There's a very important debate on the customs union. That's an, us- an issue we haven't raised at all. It's probably, it's the potential flashpoint in the UK. I notice that Hammond is still not ruling out remaining in the customs union now. There's a lot of people think that's absolutely crazy. The idea that the British are going to be out of the EU and stay in the customs union, therefore accepting the external tariffs set by the EU and just not being able to do anything about it, a lot of people think that's absolutely crazy. I accept that's difficult. That said, the frictional costs are enormous for UK companies. So what I'm saying is that there is, I think, still, I think what May has done is at least galvanise the debate, that we're no longer sleepwalking, and that is the kind of area we ought to be looking at. Um, whether it is possible, you have obviously wrestled with it in Bruegel. I still think, I think it could be possible, but um, we have to see.
8: Okay. Uh,
1: let, let me just add a couple of points. Um, my vision for Europe, um, my name is not Jean-Claude Barber. Uh, I don't have a, that kind of role, but I do think, one, Regain control over your borders. Two, deal with the internal security threat, which is real. Three, deal with unemployment, youth unemployment. You say the European Union has been a great success story. Yes, but this is manifestly a suboptimal currency area. This monetary union is not working. I I could go on but I don't need to, and we should recognize that. Uh, Hard Brexit, soft Brexit, you'd think we were talking about eggs for breakfast, soft-boiled, (laughs) hard-boiled. I mean, the fact is, the fact is, it's gonna be rough, very rough, because you're talking about 27 countries, you're talking about sign-offs by the institutions, you're talking about deep vested arguments about money we haven't talked about money, the paying into the budget, future commitments, all that. It's going to be a total bagarre, right? Absolute mess. It's going to be really rough. Currency markets, markets are going to go up and down and everything else. Goodwill, we hope there's some, but, you know, but it's, that's the way it is. So what can we do? I think we have to recognize that this is an uncharted journey. We don't, it's never been done before. Nobody's left. 28 countries have joined. Nobody's left. This is totally new. So I'll make one minor prediction. The British will want, and I would argue with some bit of here, there, a deal. A deal where it's not a brutal, bloody uh, divorce. It's not not in the interests of Europe. It's not in the interests of Britain. So you've gotta to get to a position where we understand we're gonna to have to give some things up. We're definitely gonna to have to give some things up in the single market, including financial services. City euro clearing, where still some people think we can stick to keep that. It's gone. So, given that, we then have to decide what is it that we really, really want? I would argue, knowing something about the city, Passporting really matters. Matters to the Wall Street investment banks. If there are any people in London who think, well, it doesn't matter, let the investment banks go. That's a serious hit. And by the way, you know what James said about contribution to DGP in terms of tax revenues from the City of London, it matters. It's the one thing we've got, along with a few others that's world-class. I know you don't like it sometimes, too Anglo-Saxon, too bad. It matters. So we have to decide, what do we want? and we want a bespoke deal. Now, last thought. Is there a way that some geniuses in this room or in this town or in Berlin or Paris or even Luxembourg (laughs) or Bologna can think of an arrangement, and it has been done before, I've seen it in negotiations, where we say, okay, it's not the ECJ, but maybe you could have a transition agreement where you then work out, having incorporated all that EU legislation into the into UK law. I know it's there, but that's what we're doing with this great repeal bill, where we then say we want a new treaty between the UK and the European Union, which will incorporate a huge amount. But then if there's a problem, we record resort to national courts, not the ECJ. I don't know. i have be trying to think about this, square the circle. Something like this has to be done if the British are not just going to be caught, severed, and float off into the Atlantic.
3: If I may, <laughs> I'm completely against this type of muddling through. I remember you debate. I made a Remain campaign in the UK. One of the main arguments I've heard in the UK as well as on the continent is Europe is too complicated. So I will really ask the creative minds on the continent not to be too creative. We have at the end to have something we can sell to the people. Something where you can say well, here are your rights, here are your duties, you accept The duties, you have the rights. But to be honest, uh, Lionel, I would like to find something, but we should not enter into territories where at the end, not only we, for us, keep the European Union as it is, but we make it even more complicated to keep inside people who have freely decided to leave. So be adults. You can have your cake and eat it, you have decided to leave. Mrs. May is always sending messages where she's stressed we want to get back control, we want control, etc. Then it means that you are on another track. And then what we have to think is how we can make an agreement, as you said at the end, between a third country and the EU, and the, and the EU but not invent complicated structures inside the Commission, inside the Parliament, inside the Court of Justice, that makes it impossible to me to go to my voters. You
1: don't think that the arrangements with Greece right now are not complicated and imaginative? But it is exactly the reason why we are losing the citizens. It is not quite so Cartesian as you think.
3: Yes, but it's the reason why we are in such a mess. Okay? So if we have to draw, I try to draw lessons from the Euro crisis and from the UK debate. One of the main messages is that we have to deliver and to be more simple. So we should not be too complicated. And if I may, for example, on migrants, you can even add something more than just the EU-UK relationship. In a country like France, what is happening in Calais will have a huge impact on the negotiation with the UK. Uh, I'm not at all, I don't belong to the people who try to make things more complicated. I think France should have taken uh, uh, more from the, the common burden in Europe, etc. But I can tell you that there are also specific reasons in some member states to have a very complicated uh, negotiation above all the European aspects. Because in France, we organize the border control for the UK on the French territory. This is not something that is going to to continue when you look at the way the debate is evolving. And once again, I would not put oil on this type of fire in my own country. But keep it in mind. It is a very hot issue. Because if I may, since the beginning of the UK debate, I have the feeling that in the UK people consider they have voters, they have to be accountable for them, they have to take into consideration their public opinion. We also do have a public opinion. And many people on the continent is above all in France, I must say, why? Because of Le Général de Gaulle in 1963. And if you read again his press conference, it has left in the minds of many people something, say, oh, well, we should not go too far away to please the Brits. It happens in the 1970s, we tried to uh, live together, Now you want to leave again. I have the feeling maybe I'm wrong, and I will be on the side of the people trying to help to find a compromise. But be careful, you have people who are simply fed up now. And they say, enough is enough, we have done our best, now we go on another track and let's try to be clear. So to be positive on what is the future, of course we have a lot to do in the Eurozone and for the competitiveness. We will only have jobs if we are serious, but also serious with the single market. Because in the last year, we were not serious enough with the single market. If you remember the Monty report 2010, it was not implemented, and, and it is a pity, and on digital we talk, we talk, but there are li- there is little action. So competitiveness, and, and it's not only a Eurozone issue, of course, it's uh, for the 27. And I agree with Lionel on the huge importance of security internal and maybe external. We are, if there is a a, a field where we are all sleepwalking, or it is the external security and defense. And here I would like your defense minister to leave us do what we want to do on the (laughs) continent. (laughs) Guntram, your vision on Europe.
4: Yes, uh, so (laughs) first of all I think it's great to raise that question because um, I think we need to be very much aware that fixing our internal problems is really the priority number one and there can be no substitute for not fixing our internal problems there's no such thing as a bad deal for the uk that would keep everybody inside happy uh, with an unreformed eu so we have to fix our problems um, that includes the eurozone issues that have been discussed that includes the defense issues uh, external borders uh, internal uh, issues I think these issues we have to work on and uh, irrespective of brexit we, we we have to work on and I think we've we've written a lot on how to reform the eurozone please go on our website there's there's zillions of papers out there um, so I, I cannot summarize uh, all of them now but I think it's it's really important now I have to say um, Sylvie, I would take a slightly different uh, stand on um, sort of um, different uh, degrees of integration, yeah? And I think Guy Verhofstadt, if you, if you read his report, I mean, he also talks of, uh, 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 you know, associate agreements for those outside. So some sort of a two-speed Europe, I think, is going to be unavoidable. I find, frankly speaking, the current position of um, the European Commission that there's one speed for the European Union, which basically should hold from the north of Scotland mm-hmm. to actually the Syrian borders, because let's not forget, Turkey is supposed to be an EU member, and you know then people switch off the microphone and sort of say, yeah, but we don't mean it, yeah, but come on, we have I opened, we have opened, we sorry. have opened uh, uh, um, accession negotiations with Turkey as a full EU member. And I think this is not gonna work. Uh, We will have to have different levels of integration. And I think for that, you need a core and the core needs to be reformed. It needs to be stronger. The core is the EU and in the EU, it's the Eurozone, obviously. And then there is an outer circle for which we have to find uh, some form of flexible agreements uh, uh, where uh, I would, would agree with Lionel, I mean, it, there must be a possibility to find an agreement that is not totally devastating uh, to our, our mutual economies. We should avoid lose-lose scenarios. I mean, there is we, – we should not think that a sort of – because I think some, of, some people really think it's sort of a, a win-lose scenario, yeah? So, so Britain loses 20,000 jobs in the financial industry, and all those 20,000 will move to the continent. Well, that's not going to be the case. I mean, of the 20,000, 10,000 may be actually rationalized, 5,000 may move to New York, and 5,000 may move here. And, you know, that, is that really our, our mutual interest? I don't know. Thank
3: you. Well, but if I may, I've never said I'm in favor of a lose-lose deal. Huh? Please. What I've just said is here we are comfortable, we are in Brussels. Whatever you imagine, try to think that you will have to sell it everywhere in Europe on in front of the citizens. And my responsibility as an elected person is to make sure that the creativity of people who never leave their own office does not go too far. Well, with that, can I ask you to give us one last thought because we're coming, coming to
0: an end. What is your last thought, final, on this?
1: I'm a creative person. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so that's good enough.
1: I'm a journalist.
0: <laughs> James. Uh,
2: well, what can I say? I, I hope a middle way can be found. I yeah. think, listening to Sylvie, my one thought is that the British have got into a bit of a mess, but Europe's also got to make sure there is an orderly end to this. I mean... I'm very struck by the end of the Japanese government paper that came out in September. They're not addressing just the UK, they're addressing Europe as well. They want the European Union and the UK to agree an orderly transition because it's their investments that matter, and that is the view in the US, and I appreciate it's not easy to sell a complex deal at home, but one also needs to think about how this is viewed outside Europe by investors. They're looking at Europe, and it's Europe's reputation that is also on the line here. And it does need to be orderly. That is, listening to you, that was my thought.
3: Thank you. Sylvie, any last thoughts? No, You know, the, in the theater of Sartre, when, uh, called We clos, when people are obliged to live forever and ever together, and it is called <laughs> l'enfer, <laughs> oh <dear. laughs> oh no. <laughs> no, on a more a positive uh, <laughs> No, it was, it was a joke. It was a joke to say I that you many not. people underestimate how interdependent we are. But not only be t- between the UK and the EU. As you said, the, the Japanese, the Americans, etc., they have also interest in all this. So, th- one of the key things is that we should all stop on the continent, but also in the UK, to say we are perfectly sovereign perfectly independent, that we will have perfectly control back on something that we have to decide in common. Okay?
1: Okay, Sylvia, so I just have four words to say back. <laughs> Les jeux
0: sont faits. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And Gudran, your last thoughts?
8: <laughs>
0: well, can, well, since we summarise, you join in thanking everyone. Thank you.